coming to teach principles of liberty and freedom to try and figure it out together. We're meeting each week online as a virtual cottage meeting nationwide. And it's exciting since COVID, we started teaching online and people come from all over America. And we're here primarily because we're worried. We're worried about our country. We're worried about the future of our children and our grandchildren, if we're not the ones that are gonna teach our children and grandchildren to love America and to respect our founding fathers and to really understand and revere the constitution, <laughs> no one else will. Because I don't believe they teach that anymore in the school systems or the public universities. Honey, where's that um, Ronald Reagan slide? The oh, wonderful quote by Ronald Reagan. He said, freedom, and, and I know we've all heard it, but I think sometimes we just need to remember this quote because it just kind of hits our hearts right now. He said, uh, freedom is never more than one generation from extinct extinction. We don't pass it to our kids in the bloodstream, our children. It must be taught for, protected, and handed on down for them to do the same, or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. Now, doesn't that just kind of hit you at the heart? Because we can kind of feel like we're marching in that direction with all the conflict going on right now. And enemies of freedom solution is to take our rights away, you know, with these mass shootings and, and crimes and, and contention, you know, that is their solution to take away our inalienable God-given rights and not really address the real evil, which is truly the breakdown of the family and the attacks on the religion and God being pulled out of the schools. Our kids are being taught godless curriculum for decades now and an anti-American agenda and, and, and this is being peddled right now by very popular organizations that are really enemies of freedom. And remember, we talked about last week, these groups of people are not having children. And so they want ours. They're going after ours. And if we hope to have our rising generations live the same lives of opportunity and freedom that we have, we've got to be up and learning and doing our part in teaching and so I really commend you all for joining together in our cottage meeting. You know, this, this, this act of gathering is really a biblical principle of assembling ourselves to learn and then to go out and do good and to be a light in the world. You know, it was so funny. Al, why don't you show them on the picture? All the kids were uh, away for a day. They were at some uh, school sleepover camp. So Al and I decided to take a little getaway to the beach and the Bethany Beach, which is about two and a half hours from Washington, D.C. We live in a suburb of Washington, D.C., Chevy Chase, Maryland. And when we got to the beach and we got settled in, I went and, uh, you know, rented an umbrella and the prices, it was $12 last year, it was $15 this year. And we noticed how everything was just a little bit more expensive this year at the beach. Even the free trolley is no longer free. So I was uh, commiserating with the guy who runs the Boardwalk Fries. You've gotten to know him through the years. Right. And, and he too was saying, yeah, the prices are up everywhere and, you know, just go fill up your tank. And that's, you know, proof that something's not right. And he expressed to you kind of a, a hopelessness. Like you didn't know what to do about it. And so Al came back and, and uh, with, I guess with his bucket of uh, boardwalk fries and walked across the beach. And an hour or so later, uh, a lovely lady came over to us and she said, when I saw you walking down the beach with that shirt, God bless America, land that I love. And so she's talking to us. She said, I just said to myself, I love that man. And she uh, thanked you for, you know, showing your patriotism in such an open way and how inspired uh, she was. And I noticed the rest of the afternoon now kind of puffed his chest out a little bit more. Were you, <laughs> were you thinking about how all women must love you because you <laughs> espouse your love I, for this I country? You look quite muscly there. <laughs> <laughs> a legend in your own mind. But that, that was sweet, though. It was, it was so sweet. And what a simple way 
to be an antidote to the hopelessness that so many are feeling in the country now, right now is just to wear a shirt like that. God bless America. Because I dare say a lot of people took note of that and that cheered their hearts mm-hmm. that day. And not many people are, you know, actually going to. Uh, or they thought I was a white supremacist. <laughs> You were really throwing them off. But what a what a, a simple way to be about, uh, you know, bringing hope and light and uh, a little bit of uh, inspiration to others in the world. You know, in this uh, nation of commotion and contention and suffering that we're seeing almost daily, as I'm in the word, and thank you so much, Glenn, for your beautiful prayer about studying the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the gospel of freedom and the gospel of Jesus Christ are so intertwined. But as I was in the word this week, and I was reminded of God, you know, counseling us and admonishing us to be peacemakers, you know, how do you be a peacemaker in a world of such conflict? And I definitely think he wants us to use our shield of faith in him and in these principles of truth and freedom to help cool and calm and extinguish those fiery darts of contempt and anger and uh, divisiveness. Boy, every time I go on the internet, oh, I feel it. But I don't think God wants us being a peacemaker to mean that we shrink before those that disparage our nation or disparage him. But I think he wants us to be confident in our convictions as we speak up for God and we speak up for um, godly law and these principles of liberty, these ideas, these ingredients that this land was established on that we've been studying now for the last nine weeks because these principles are true. They're proven that they work as we study our history and they're Principles are universal. They transcend party and politics. And that's why I always say these principles will be your best friend. And and I highly recommend, I hope that you're memorizing them. Just like the Bible, you don't read the Bible one time and put it away. And these principles of liberty, we've been studying them for 10 years in our family devotional. Every week we study one with um, the existing children in our home. And so we will, we're coming to the end. We have three weeks left of class. June 23rd will be the last week uh, of our class. We'll take two and a half months off of uh, teaching for summer. And then we'll start back up again. Leave um, the September Labor Day. Yeah, after Labor Day. And I think we'll either do the Healing of America Summer or a, a book called The Naked Communist. We haven't figured that out. But last week we talked about the 16th, 17th, and 18th 18 principles. There's 28 principles. Last week we talked about that separation of um, power, the three branches that Polybius, who was born in what 264 BC, understood. And the founders studied these ancient thinkers. He was a a Greek historian. And then they studied Montesquieu that expounded more on this separation of power. And then John Adams and his, uh, you know, study of the divine science of politics. And he was able to uh, weave that into the Massachusetts uh, constitution and ultimately into our constitution. And then the 17th principle talked about the checks and the balances, the genius of the founders to weave in checks and balances among those three branches. And what has happened, and we learn about that in the Healing of America seminar, seminar three, what has happened with some of these modern amendments that came along in the 1900s that disrupted those checks and balances. And then uh, uh, principle 18 talked about Look, if you don't have a written constitution, your rights cannot be preserved. And we saw that with the Anglo-Saxons, that they didn't have a written constitution and ultimately their government was, uh, they, they were wiped out and, and were conquered. So everyone, let's turn to the 19th principle. Oh, I love this principle. It's one of my most quoted favorite principles. Only limited and carefully defined power should be delegated to the government. All others should be retained with the people. This principle should be shouted from the rooftops. It's one of the best reasons why you can explain why Roe v. Wade being overturned is completely appropriate and necessary. The Constitution never took into consideration the issue of abortion. And because 
It doesn't. It should be handled at the state level and with the people. And that is apparently what it's going to look like is going to happen. No principle was emphasized more vigorously during the Constitutional Convention than the necessity of limiting the the authority of the federal government. Not only was this to be done by carefully defining the powers delegated to the government, but the founders were determined to bind its administrators down with the legal chains of the Constitution. Jefferson said that, bind them down with the chains of the Constitution. The federal government is what he meant. And um, it would also be recalled that one of the reasons that a lot of the states didn't want to adopt the original Constitution is because they feared the encroachments of the federal government uh, on the rights of the states and the people. And so the first 10 amendments to the constitution known as the Bill of Rights were added to include some of those ancient inalienable rights of the Anglo-Saxon freemen that you you find as you study the Anglo-Saxons government that that, um, there could be no question as to the strictly limited authority that the people were conferring on their central government. Notice how the ninth and 10th amendments are um, worded in the constitution. The ninth amendment says, remember there are 27 amendments in our constitution. The first 10 are what our founders gave us those bill of rights. And the ninth amendment says the enumeration of the constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And the 10th Amendment says the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution or prohibited by it uh, by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So if issues are not addressed in the Constitution, they were, they were supposed to go back to the states and to the people in those states to figure, figure out what was going to be best for those people. Now, the people felt that the hedging up of federal authority, the trimming of the federal authority was absolutely essential because of their experience with England's corrupt and abusive governments of the past. And Alexander Hamilton talks about that, that there is a nature, Alexander Hamilton says, of sovereign powers and impatience of control that disposes those who are vested with the exercise of it to look with an evil eye upon all external attempts to restrain or direct its operations. This tendency is not difficult to be accounted for. It has the origin in the love of power. That's why this constitution our founders gave us really was written for the ages. It was meant Mm -hmm. to govern not only 3 million, but remember John Adams, we talked about up to 300 million and beyond. And they knew that this constitution was a constitution for the ages that would you know, be able to grow with the growing population because human nature never changes. The lust for power uh, never changes. It is in, almost inbred in us as natural men and women in the constitution was gonna put chains on, on some of these, uh, uh, you know, natural man tendencies. Okay, Al, take All it right. away. Thank you, Jelani, very well done. So we're gonna go to the text that talks about the original balance between the federal government and the states. One of the things that we forget as a people and even our government forgets in the state houses and even in the federal government, that the states created the federal government, not the other way around. And so we seem to be more beholden to the federal government because we've allowed through those amendments added to the constitution to centralize power in Washington, D.C. And as Julian highlighted beautifully, those two ultimate principles that we are encouraged to write on our hearts and our minds, particularly when people tell us that the constitution is obsolete, it was written for their day, but not for ours, are the principles of checks and balances and separation of powers. And we'll talk a little bit about a little bit more about this as we get into it, but it we're in this mess because we've allowed centralization of power. And, and what does that do when, when power is centralized either at the state capitol or in Washington DC where they make all the decisions for us, we feel less empowered. We feel we become apathetic because just like that man who I bought fries from every year feels powerless. We're talking about gas prices and he feels like there's nothing we can do about it. So, and, and education is another issue 
where decision-making has been taken away from the family who should be directing education and it's been placed in the state capital or in Washington, D.C. So a major check on the federal government was destroyed by the enactment of the 17th Amendment to the Constitution, which actually supersedes those two Bill of Rights that Julene highlighted, number nine and number 10. So every amendment added after the previous one supersedes those amendments. So your senator was supposed to be on that wall of protection from the federal government because the, the Constitution was designed to protect families from an, a runaway federal government. So I've got a couple of slides here that I want to highlight. We're going we're gonna to take a trip down memory lane and talk about what the original intent of the founders was with regard to the United States Senate. Okay, so let's talk about the original intent of the founders. So let's talk about the responsibilities of the, of the Senate. And senators were to be the sentinels of state rights. And I'm using the word he, but we can interchange it with she. So he is selected by state legislatures. So the legislators were supposed to select who the senators were to represent the states. He's selected every six years. He's more mature. He has more experience. He or she is more stable. And only, only one third of the Senate becomes eligible for election every two years. And when I say election, going back to being selected by the states. And as you can see the wall there, we the people are on the right-hand side of this. And so the Senator was supposed to be on that wall to protect us. Right now, the IRS, OSHA, any federal agency that you can think of can go into your home or place of business and disrupt your life. And there's really nothing the state can do about it. And you've got the Senate had the task of cooling the emotions of the House. So the House of Representatives represented the people and they were the problem solvers. They were elected every two years and then they would pass legislation that they deemed that they would solve problems, throw it over to the Senate and the Senate would ask two important questions. One, can we afford it? And number two, does it infringe on the rights of the people? So when the 17th Amendment was passed in 1913, which was, was not a very good year, this 17th Amendment power was taken away from the state legislators to select senators. And now they were subject to being voted by popular, popular vote, popular vote. So Senators thus had to create ways to spend money in the states in order to get reelected. So they started operating like the House. They became also a problem-solving wing. Instead of being that check on the House and on the federal government, they became operating just like the House. So senators were forced to provide jobs instead of protect, protect jobs. They bring home the bacon so we can get reelected. So the secret to get re-election is tax, tax the few, spend, spend, spend on the many, and get elected. We elect them the first time, and then special interest through fundraising keeps them in office. Because very rarely does a senator raise all their money from the state that they're trying to represent. Normally it comes from all over the country because Right now, it takes 20, 25, 30, sometimes $100 million. The race in Georgia between Herschel Walker and Senator Warnock will easily surpass maybe $200 million that they will spend on that race by both parties. And so how were these false concepts sold to the people? Well, because we love you and we will take care of you. So then you've got the formation of these federal agencies. That's how you bring the, the bacon home is you create these federal agencies and that creates jobs in your states. And so the federal government grows and grows and grows. And then you've got national health care. All these issues, all these areas we just highlighted in the slide presentation were supposed to be reserved to the states, but the federal government took them over because that's how you stay in office. And then you don't get something like this. So you have Mitt Romney who is the junior senator in Utah, and there's Katanji Brown, who just put on the Supreme Court, 
Mitt Romney supported her nomination against the will of the people of that state because he doesn't feel like he's beholden to the people that have sent him there. So he's supposed to come home every weekend. All the senators go home every weekend and take direction from the state legislatures and from the governor on terms of how they're going to vote the previous week. The 17th Amendment changed all of that. Okay, so let's go to, I think we're back to you, Jelene. Okay. Let's go to principle 18. Those are cool little slides there. So the 20th principle principle talks about efficiency and dispatch requires the government to operate according to the will of the majority of the people, but there should be constitutional provisions made to protect the rights of the minority. Now, the first hand reading, you might think, hmm, what does that mean? Does, does, I, I think sometimes this principle can be confused or misconstrued to mean, oh, does that mean like the minority, the marginalized groups today, maybe the LGBTQIA plus? I'm getting a lot of emails from organizations I belong to that are welcoming uh, Gay Pride Month and, and it's not LGBTQ, but IA plus as well. I'm going to figure out what that means. They but, keep adding alphabets, but then they always have the plus on the end, which yeah. is interesting. Like, does anything go? But, you know, some people might read this and go, oh, does that mean that there should be constitutional provisions made for marginalized groups, Black Lives Matter, so forth? No, that's not at all what the founders meant by that. So I'm gonna talk about what it means to operate according to the will of the majority. And then Al will talk about these minority rights. So it, here's the, the little phrase on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. One of the most serious mistakes uh, when they structure the Articles of Confederation was that no changes could be made to that document unless every state agreed unanimous consent. And uh, that created a lot of problems because one state could hold out and uh, could prevent maybe a needed change that needed to be adopted. And so um, that was kind of the basis when they wove in uh, this principle uh, of majority rules into the constitution. Until then it had been unanimous approval and had to be had and that was disastrous particularly in a time of emergency because uh, but even in a healthy time that would inhibit you know healthy progress so a unanimity is not ideal the majority rule is a necessity and this theory of majority rule was explained by John Locke an, an English philosopher and physician that was widely read and regarded by our founders John Locke was born in 1632 in England, and he says it is necessary that the body should move that way whither the greater force carries it, which is the consent of the majority, or else it would be impossible. It should be to act or continue as one body. And he expounds upon the problem of securing unanimous consent. He said, look, you know, considering the infirmities of health and just the advocations of business, it would be necessarily difficult to gather the whole public assembly, not to mention the variety of opinions and interests that unavoidably occur when there's a collection of men making it impossible for them to, you know, have uh, a unanimous consent. And so um, Al is going to talk about why the majority rule is a necessity and why minorities have equal rights. Okay. So the founders took very seriously the notion that's in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. And that the Constitution is based on natural law or God's law. So that means every legal citizen, legal citizen would have their inalienable rights protected by the United States Constitution. And so in the text, and and I think we all agree with this, it is a responsibility of minorities themselves to assimilate into the culture, to learn the language, to seek needed education, and become self-sustaining and make themselves recognized as a genuine asset to the community, as opposed to what we have now with the open borders in the South, it used to be they would 
come over to America to work and then go back home at night. Now we've incentivized this illegal behavior by, by giving them goodies and promising them goodies when they come here. And I, I wanna show this quote by Dr. King that I think is profound as it relates to this issue. And, I, and let, I'd like us to focus on that, what's in the italics on the bottom there. It says, when the architects, and this is, this is the speech he made, the I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. in 1964, 64, 64. Okay. When the architects of our Republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so the civil rights movement, and even to this day, is to have America live up to those promises. And there's no document that's been written in the modern history of man that guarantees that people can come here and if they're determined, they can succeed. Whether you've lived here your whole life, if your family goes all the way back to colonial times, or you've come here as, an, as a legal immigrant, all fall heir to the blessings and promises of America. Unfortunately, what we're teaching our kids today is to seek after oppression as opposed to opportunity. I like to call America the so what nation, meaning regardless of racism, discrimination, any obstacles that may be placed before you, if you are determined, you can succeed in this country. Okay, Julian, let's go to the 21st principle. Okay, so that's what the founders meant. They didn't necessarily mean that we should make laws or the Supreme Court should rule. Um, immorally on issues exactly of right. minorities, so right. to speak. We're talking about the Constitution is based on natural law or God's law. So everything flows from that foundational principle. So whether your, your sexual orientation and so does it matter that we all have the same rights, whether we have different sexual orientations or not, or come from different ethnic backgrounds. So, okay. So the 21st amendment says strong local self-government is the keystone to preserving human freedom. Now this principle along with 19, I think bells and whistles should be going off mm -hmm. when we, we talk about these. I, I have quoted principle 19 and principle 21. They go hand in hand. And it is often um, one of my, my go-to principles when I'm trying to explain why, you know, we shouldn't look 2,000, 3,000 miles away to Washington, D.C., because our founding fathers never intended for them, Washington, D.C., to solve all our problems the way they are today. Because we know when we look to Washington, D.C., we begin to lose control and say over what happens in our own backyard, over local matters. And we've seen that with education, with Common Core. They dangled the carrots before us and said, we'll give you a lot of money if your state takes uh, Common Core curriculum. And sure enough, <laughs> states, states took it. And we're seeing it with our health care, you know, is being dictated from Washington, D.C., and certainly our medical freedoms have been infringed upon uh, with the COVID regulations and suggestions from Washington, D.C. And so it says here that the centralization of political power always, just like Al talked about, destroys liberty by removing the decision-making function from the people on the local level and transferring it to the officers of the central government. This gradually benumbs the spirit of voluntarism amongst the people and they lose the will to solve their own problems. Wow, I would underline that because that is what we are seeing in society today. It also 
uh, causes people to cease to be involved in community affairs, and they seek the an anonymity of oblivion in the seething crowds of the city and often degenerate into faceless automatons who have neither a voice nor a, vo a vote. Wow, are you seeing that today when, you know, problems befall people that instead of looking uh, to, to God, you know, for the solutions, to, oh, we have, a, we have a concern, we have a problem, you rally the troops and the family, instead of doing that anymore, we just, we turn to government to solve our problems, to write us the check, to help us figure it out. That is what we get when we look to government, not God, for our freedom. And now, isn't that why they're going after Christianity? I mean, that's really the ultimate goal is to numb the people into thinking that instead of looking to God as their liberator, they yeah. want them to look to government yeah. and government to be their God. Yeah. I mean, they, now I was reading in Washington Post, they're now comparing Christianity to white nationalism or white supremacy. The very thing that helped liberate black people from slavery and helped them overcome all those years of Jim Crow, they now want to take that away or convince people that no, don't, don't follow God, follow us. And they're actually blaming national Christianity on the mass shootings that are going on. It's so distorted and perverse because that's the very reason why people are losing hope and faith because they don't have God in their life. And what was it Benjamin Franklin said that the more wicked people become, the more need they have of masters. They have more, more, than, laws. Uh, more laws, more government, more government to be told what to do when they're not looking to God, they look to government. It's kind of like uh, the parent who does just too much for the kids. They almost create little monsters with their mm -hmm. children, They're the helicopter parents. It's, it's okay to let your children fail and, mm -hmm. and not bail them out. And, and we've gotten used to the bailout. And so our founding fathers knew that the golden key to preserving freedom, a republic government based on natural law where people were going to govern themselves, the golden key was local control. How different from the New England town spirit where every person had a voice and a vote how different was the Anglo-Saxon tribal meetings where people were considered sovereign and every man took pride in participating? And how different from ancient Israel were the families of the people who were governed in, in the multiples of tens, captains of fifties, captains of hundreds and thousands, and where problems were mostly solved. We read about in Exodus and Deuteronomy, they were solved at the local level where the problems originated. All of those societies that were just mentioned there had strong local self-government, and that is what the founding fathers considered the golden key to preserving our human freedom. Jefferson compares New England with Virginia. Jefferson saw the advantages of that close-knit New England town versus the Aristotle. Aristocratic rural life of Virginia. Yeah, you got it. Aristocratic rural life of Virginia. He said, Jefferson said, these wards called townships in New England are the vital principle of their governments and have proven to be the wisest invention ever devised by the wit of man for the perfect exercise of self government and Jefferson was anxious to have all the English colonists in America revive the customs of their Anglo-Saxon ancestors with strong local government. Uh, an uh, early historian uh, born around the mid 1800s in Massachusetts, he was a, a politician. He wrote that in ancient England, local self-government was found in the connection with the political and territorial divisions of a tithing, tens, a hundredth, a borough, which is a city or town, counties, and shires. And that was very similar uh, to the ideas of the Anglo-Saxon governmental units and was very similar to um, Moses' governmental units. And that, of course, we know is representative government. 
but uh, this author, uh, what's his name? Frothingham said, but in the course of the events through history, the crown, the English crown deprived the body of the people of its power of local rule invested it in a small number of persons in each locality, which were called municipal councils. And in this way, the ancient freedom of these municipalities was undermined and the power of the ruling class began to become installed in its place. And such was the nature of local self-government in England. Uh, and, and as when this began to happen, hence we see these little ships uh, sailing and the plantings of our little early American colonies in the 16 and 1700s. So um, the instincts for self-government ran deep in those little pilgrims that came across to the new world. Uh, and Froth Frothingham um, says, he actually quotes a French historian here, when there scarcely remain traces of popular assemblies, the remembrance of them of the right of the freemen to deliberate and transact their business together resided in the minds of men as a primitive tradition and a thing which might come about again, he's saying the new people that came to the new world, America. And that is exactly what happened as these Englishmen pulled away from their mother country, migrated to America. He says in these colonies, these assemblies reappeared and the old rights were again enjoyed. So Al is gonna um, yeah. take us on home thank here you. with so, this principle. Thank you, Jelani. So they left England because they wanted freedom of religion. They wanted to be able to make decisions for themselves. So that's why they've had that instinct for local self-government because they wanted to chart out their own destiny. So in the text, it says, Jefferson emphasizes the role of strong local self-government. So during COVID, I had an opportunity to do a Zoom with a young company made up of millennials who wanted to get my perspective on what was going on in Washington, D.C. with the government because they wanted to be able to hit the ground running when lockdowns ended so they could continue to run out on their business. And invariably, we started talking about the mess that's in Washington, D.C. and so on and so forth. And these kids, these young people were kids of color. They're millennials, newly graduated from college or in their mid to late 20s. And I emphasize this principle that we're talking about right now with regard to strong local government because they wanted to know what I thought was a solution. And when I highlighted for them decentralization of power in terms of decision-making, it resonated with them. Because if you think about it, when they go through school, young people have a phenomenal sense of justice as they're being trained to be little social justice warriors. They wanna solve problems. And it resonated with them the idea that they should be able to make decisions at a local level that affect their communities. So it transcends, these principles transcend race, politics, what have you. And that was a real life example. If we teach principles, they will resonate with people who are seekers. So Jefferson said something really, really cool. I, I, I would commend us to memorizing this statement. He says, he talks about distributing political power. He says, no, my friend, the way to have good and safe government is not to trust it all to one, but to divide it among the many, distributing to everyone exactly the functions he is competent to. So we talk about separation of powers, checks and balances, decentralized decision-making down to the local level so that people can be empowered to solve their own problems. He says here, he goes on to say, what has destroyed liberty and the rights of man in every government which has ever existed under the sun? The generalizing and concentrating all cares and power into one body. They understood history. They knew history. They knew what would happen. And they knew people's tendency to, to move towards kingly government, where they, think they feel like a king or a small group of people will even out things for everyone. And I like when J James Madison, who's considered the father of the Constitution, 
talks about the deployment of power between the federal government and the states. He says the powers delegated to the proposed constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain, the state governments are numerous and indefinite. So if it's not highlighted in the constitution, then it's supposed to be dealt with by the states. The former federal powers will be exercised principally on external objects as war, peace, negotiation, and foreign commerce. So when you go back to Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, the federal government is only given 20 enumerated powers, and most of them involve safety of our, of our citizens, dealing with foreign countries, helping to enhance trade, and securing the border and setting immigration laws. And we, you know, we want the best federal government on the planet, but only in the areas where they have been designated by the US Constitution and then the states deal with everything else, healthcare, education, workplace safety, caring for the poor and needy. It's just counterintuitive to have all those decisions made in Washington DC, sitting on the social services committee where we get funding to help in the area of social services in the state legislature in Utah. Hey, I think I have a better way of taking care of the poor and needy. Let's, let's provide a work requirement in place for receiving benefits. Let's maybe set some rules and some standards where we're encouraging people to marry the person who they got pregnant with, as opposed to marrying the government, why don't we incentivize them to marry each other as opposed to breaking them apart? Those are great suggestions, but we can't do that because we take money from the federal government and that money comes with strings attached. So Madison goes on to say the powers reserved to the several states will extend to all the objects which in the ordinary course of affairs concern the lives, liberties, and properties of the people and the internal order improvement and prosperity of the state. So what he's saying here is the federal government is supposed to be looking towards external, outside, and the states are supposed to take care of things inside. So when we deal with issues like critical race theory, social emotional learning, and all these policies and practices that the left is trying to impose on our kids, we can play whack-a-mole going after each issue. And what happens is you end up wearing out the people going after issue after issue after issue. But if you took all that collective power and energy and focused on decentralizing decision-making down to the local level, those problems will go away. Just imagine if the state capital we didn't have a state board of education, and I, and I don't want to defend anybody who's working for the state board of education, but what, what would happen if the money went and the decision-making went right down to the local level where the parents formed a committee, we would get together every year and we would select parents that we trusted to form this committee, and they would go then and take that money and go hire the principal, and then hold that principal accountable for the teachers that they hire, the curriculum that's put in, and you would see things, you wouldn't see critical race theory in the classroom. You wouldn't see these things that they're trying to shove in the back door and enter our kids' faces with race and gender and sexual identity. We would be focused on the things that the parents wanted their kids to be taught. So that's the key. I think one of the things we want to definitely emphasize tonight are those two principles of separation of powers, dividing power among the many, and, and checks and balances, and empowering people at the local level to come up with solutions. Problems originate, we want solutions also to originate where those problems come forth. Okay, Janine, back to you. Okay, so what was the prophecy there? It says a prophecy by John Fisk. You can read that. I just, I just try. I just summarize that in my little closing. But if you, if you want to repeat it, that would go right no, ahead. No, no, it's just a. I mean, basically, the more he's, he basically prophesies where we are today. Frisky tonight. Where we sent, we've centralized problems. We've centralized problem solving, 
And he highlights that that's what's going to happen if we fall asleep at the will, which we have. Yeah. And we look to the government to solve all of our problems. Our nation will be impaired. That was his prophecy. And ooh, boy, we're seeing this prophecy played out right before our eyes is, is everyone's first instinct to, you know, look to Washington, D.C. to solve their problems. And um, we saw how it kind of benumbs our spirit to think independently, you know, instead of COVID, like, oh, what can I do to increase my immune system so I can be more healthy, so I, I can be immune to some of these diseases out there. We're just like, so many people were like, it, 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 I, don't, I don't need to be responsible for my body myself because I can get a free vaccine, experimental vaccination that the government will provide and all will be fine. So see how that kind of benumbs our spirit to take responsibility for our own self. And, and certainly, you know, we have allowed the federal government to abuse that interstate commerce. And instead of they were just supposed to, you know, manage commerce amongst states, but they began to get involved in commerce within the states. And hence, you know, they began to subsidize and prop up businesses this way. Um, we have a formula shortage. My, our little daughter, who's 27 years old, just came back from three weeks in Ghana for work. Ghana, three, three African countries, Zambia and the DR Congo. She said, mom, this, these are third world countries. They have no shortages, <laughs> baby formula. But this is what happened when we allow the government to you know, get involved in the free market. And, uh, and so... Anyways, it causes us to be benumbed, benumbed, it benumbs our spirit to solve our own problems. So I hope that you can really um, lock in your mind that 19th principle that our founders intended only limited and carefully defined powers to be delegated to the federal government and everything else was to be decided at the local level. And, um, and that principle 21, we understand that look, it's up to us and to our state to determine what kind of life and laws that we are going to dwell under. And that means that we have to be involved at some level. I mean, you don't have, we don't have to, you know, solve all the problems, but we do need to do something. Maybe it will be in the church community. Maybe it'll be in the school community or this on the city council or get involved with the state legislature at the state level. Enough of us doing our part locally really can begin to shape and alter our neighborhoods and communities. And as we continue to learn these principles, and you begin to get wise and you write them on your heart, then that's when you, gotta, you go to God and you say, well, what, what should my part be? What can I do with the knowledge that I'm gaining? And that's why the Healing of America Seminar number four is so powerful because it gives you ideas on what you can do to heal your home and to heal your school systems and your communities and your neighborhoods and your states. And these seeds of volunteerism and service are best planted, however, in the home. You know, I grew up in a home where my parents ultimately divorced. And so we had all kinds of problems, but I saw them still trying to, you know, uh, serve in the community and take us to church and to pray with us. And my grandma ran the Red Cross and I saw my parents bring in neighbors and grandparents bring in neighbors who fell upon hard times and they took us to the town hall meetings and mama took us voting. And so these seeds of volunteerism were planted in me and I'm doing what I'm doing today because of the seeds that were planted by my parents as imperfect as they were. So with all the commotion and contention and divisions, the really the the best way that we can calm and cool the fiery darts of anger and division is to be confident in our faith in God and to be confident in these principles of liberty upon which our nation was founded and to learn to speak the language of faith and hope and freedom and then to share these convictions and beliefs um, you know, confidently without malice and to serve generously in our community and really to live mer merciful, even with mm -hmm. people that have different opposing views than us, because how are we ever going to soften hearts if we always look at each other 
as mm -hmm. the complete enemy. Right. And every, and everyone is allowed to have a Saul on the road to Damascus experience. Exactly, exactly. So to have the strength to be able to do this, uh, I think will only come as we're on our knees petitioning the heavens. And as we're in the word, uh, we're I'm reading Joshua last week and it tells us in Joshua 1.8, God promises if we will meditate on his word, our ways will be prosperous and we will have great success. And as I was studying, you, you know, the Israelites are now going into the promised land and Joshua is going to have to, in order to get to Jericho, is going to have to cross the Jordan River. And in Joshua 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, God tells them, look, you haven't passed this way before, so you're going to have to trust me. And then God tells them in this chapter that you need to sanctify yourself. And I think to me, that means we need to prepare ourselves. We need to lean into God. We need to find some space in our life to receive the miracles that come from God. And, you know, as I think at the point that we are, are in history, we've never passed this way before. We've never seen these kind of times and days. And so we're going to have to let the Lord lead, lead us across the Jordan River. And we're going to have to prepare ourselves. And we're doing that as we you know, join together each week. And what does God tell us in um, chapter three of Joshua? That tomorrow I will do wonders among you. And I really do think God will do wonders among us as we sanctify ourselves. And remember, prophecy is the mold by which history is poured. So if we want to know how things are going to end in this nation, we study prophecy. And as we lean into God and sanctify our ourselves and trust him and let him lead because we've never gone this way before prepare ourselves for miracles that's why we never need to fear or doubt because ultimately we have read the book and we do know how things end we just want to make sure <laughs> that we're on the right side and we're on that wall and we're doing our little part and uh, so we have every reason to be hopeful so that it ends our class this week. Next week, we're going to study principle 22, 23, and 24 about being governed by the rule of law, not by the whims of men. We're seeing a lot of whimsical leadership right now. And uh, 23 talks about we should have a broad program of education. That means we should have an elected or an educated electorate, not free college. That's not what they're meaning. And ultimately, principle 24 talks about we need to be strong militarily. And so um, anyway, so study up, go back and review principles 19, 20 and 21. Walk it in in the next 48 hours. That's how you'll retain more of what you we've studied.